A very good morning to you. You must be the keen one because you're the early bird. You'll probably see some a little later. I'd like to talk to you about the several factors of meditation and how they apply to automatic purification. Now, I already mentioned purification yesterday more than once, and it is the essential part of any spiritual path. If a spiritual path, so-called, does not contain mental and emotional purification, you know from the start that it isn't a spiritual path. It's another diversion, and they do exist in abundance and they also existed at the Buddha's time the human mind has not changed at all so remember the word purification and remember that that is the spiritual path and after having remembered it then if you can remember the guidelines that I have mentioned here the Buddha's way of purification, you will have a practice. You will have a practice which will bring results. There's no doubt about it. Purifying oneself has to bring results. There's no um, mystery about that. So yesterday I mentioned already that meditation has immediate benefits whether you get concentrated or not. And one of the immediate benefits is the antidote for the sloth and torpor in the mind. Well, that's the very first step. And this is called, technically, the initial application to the meditation subject. Now, the initial application means every time you put your mind on the breath, or what happens to be at the time your meditation subject, your counteracting sloth and torpor in the mind. The more often one does it, the more alert the mind becomes. The more alert it is, the easier it will understand where to find its own happiness. A foggy mind, a distracted mind, a mind which doesn't have any clarity in it, doesn't know. It looks usually in the sensual realm. And I talked about that yesterday already, that that does not satisfy. There are five factors of meditation, and we also have five particular hindrances. Now, these five hindrances that the Buddha specified are, so to say, headings for all that ails us. He made it easy for us to understand by giving us headings so that we can refer to that when something goes amiss in our lives. And then when we have already learned not to blame the trigger, and to look in ourselves why it's going wrong. And then, remembering those five headings, called the five hindrances, 
we may be able to find exactly what's wrong. But we have automatic antidotes in the meditation, which of course have to be supported and strengthened through the daily practice. And there also the Buddha gave exact guidelines how to do that. Our distractions of which we have any amount which are easily available to us constantly hide these facts from us. And then once in a while it hits us why things aren't the way we think they ought to be. Well, we can look at the hindrances. So the first aspect of meditation actually counteracts this slothful mind, the procrastinating mind, the mind that can't be bothered, the mind that doesn't see clearly, the mind that is lazy and doesn't want to actually exert itself, that is looking for comfort, comfort in any sensual realm that's available. And we do have five sensual realms available to us. The second aspect of meditation has already a much stronger impact and it's called the continued application to the meditation subject, which means being able to stay on the breath for whatever length of time the mind has finally been able to do that. It doesn't happen overnight. Nobody learns it on a weekend. It's impossible to stay on the meditation subject. One has to practice. A skill like any other has to be practiced. And one has to know why one is doing it too. Because otherwise one's not going to do it. There has to be an understanding. The mind has to understand something. And it has to become less egocentric. As long as it's only concerned with its own comfort, it's not going to meditate because in the beginning meditation is not comfortable. It has to become comfortable. But so if one is too egocentered, one isn't going to do it. So if we have an ability for continued application for whatever length of time that may be, that is a necessary step in order to minimize skeptical doubt. Now skeptical doubt is inherent in every person and that's why it's one of the headings for one of the five hindrances. The Buddha compared it to being in the desert without a road map and going around in circles and having no provisions and finally being overrun by bandits. That circular movement is also sometimes called guru hopping. That's another name for going around in the desert without a road map. Going from one practice to another, trying to find the one that might be most, very often most comfortable, most uh, giving one the most 
um, feeling of having something that is actually entertaining, very often something that is felt to be physically pleasant, often because of the teacher, none of that has any bearing on spiritual practice. The teacher is never anything else except the channel to disseminate the guidelines of the great masters. The Buddha was adamant about the non-suitability of hanging on to a guru. One's got to do it all oneself. One needs teachers to give the information, but that's all. So this skeptical doubt utters itself in the mind when the mind says, oh, there must be something easier. Surely one doesn't have to sit on the floor. And I can't get concentrated anyway, so I'll look for something other than this. And uh, also it utters itself in the thought in the mind that one hasn't proven it to oneself. So how can it be true? It's a lack of trust and a lack, lack of confidence. And if we don't have trust and confidence in something that is supposed to give us the greatest benefit, we'll never get started. People get married strictly on trust and confidence. They haven't got a clue whether it's going to work. And it often doesn't. But one has to have trust and confidence that this is going to be something that will give benefit to one. Otherwise, why start? And if one doesn't have the trust and confidence in that relationship, one will constantly look for a better one, which of course breaks it right at the beginning. It's the same with spiritual practice or even more so. Either one has trust and confidence and actually gives it all one has got, just like one has to do in a relationship, or one looks from one to the next without any results. This is skeptical doubt is only totally eliminated at what is called the first path moment, when the meditator sees the Nibbanic freedom the liberation for him or herself for a moment. Then it's totally eliminated. Until then, it's lurking in the background and tries to pull one to the beach, the television set, the uh, traveling, the exotic. It's always there. Come, come with me. I'll show you something. We've all had it, and probably still do. But the sustained application on the meditation subject gives one that first inkling that there is peace to be found only within oneself. They haven't got it laid on in India or China or wherever else one thinks they've got it. One's got it in one's own heart. 
and only the sustained application to the meditation subject gives that glimmer. And then, a bit of this doubt, in fact, a fair bit of that skeptical doubt about the whole practice just vanishes. Another thing vanishes, and that's the doubt in one's own ability to find one's own peace. That is the moment when one realizes it's not out there. It's not a word. It doesn't mean non-shooting, although that is, that of course, um, much better than shooting. But it doesn't mean that at all. It's something entirely different. So this um, initial application to the meditation subject and the sustained application to the meditation subject are very often compared to hitting the gong and then having the sound of the gong continue like this. As long as the sound continues, that's all there is. As long as the sustained application continues, that's all there is. Nothing else is happening. The skeptical doubt, if it continues in one's heart and mind, is an insidious enemy of spiritual practice. It's an insidious enemy for everything one wants to do. One can't get anything done properly. But mostly spiritual practice, because spiritual practice doesn't have something that we can look at, hear, taste, touch, or smell. And we're used to using those abilities of ours to prove to ourselves what's right and what's wrong. So we don't see it, we don't hear it, we don't taste it, we don't touch it, and we don't smell it. So what's there so good about it? So skeptical doubt is in the heart and in the mind underlying everything. Maybe our friends have said, oh, it's very good, go and meditate. Or somebody has said, look, you're restless, go and meditate. Or the doctor has said, well, meditation's going to help you, you'll go and do that. So we try, but underneath it all, there's no real giving of oneself. I can assure you that without that, meditation does not work. One has to give oneself to it wholeheartedly. If one has a relationship with another person and lives together and one doesn't give oneself wholeheartedly, how does that work? Not at all, does it? There's constant friction. There's constantly something wrong. Wholehearted relationship to what one is doing is the necessity of success. Half-heartedly, it is half-hearted success. One's got to be able to give oneself. And that one can only do if one has trust and confidence. Again, if you use the simile of the relationship, if you don't have any trust or confidence in the other person, why stick around? It makes things extremely difficult. And if one's trust and confidence is misplaced, well, obviously, it makes things even more difficult. The trust and confidence in one's own breath cannot possibly be misplaced. It means life, but one's got to give oneself to it, to being there and nowhere else. Only if the heart, full of that wholehearted giving, is engaged in it, 
without thinking about it. Just giving oneself to it can one meditate. So skeptical doubt is a great hindrance. There has to be that loving feeling of doing the right thing. And not because I want to get something, that too stands in the way, but because I want to get rid of all the things that are hanging around me and are convolutions of the mind that make life difficult. In daily life, the Buddha's antidote for skeptical doubt are noble friends and noble conversations. And this is the same antidote for all of our five hindrances. They all have their special ones, but each one is also having this same one. So noble friends and noble conversation can be seen to be extremely important. The kind of friends we have helps us to stay on a spiritual path. If we have somebody who is constantly inviting us to go with them to dance, drink, uh, maybe um, just travel for sightseeing, we won't have time to practice. They may be perfectly good people, but they're not interested in developing their own spiritual growth. If there is somebody who is trying to dissuade us from meditation, he's not a noble friend. If there's somebody who's trying to dissuade us from being together with people who meditate, from being together with those who can help us on the spiritual path, such a person is not a noble friend. We need to distinguish between those who are trying to be helpful and those that are just trying to get their own way. And trying to get one's own way, of course, it's rampant in humanity. But if we have any inkling that there's something more to be done than just sense contact and rational or abstract thinking, we've got to be careful with our time. Our time on this planet as this person whom we know ourselves to be at this moment is extremely limited. Any age can be found on the cemetery. If you like to check it out, just go to a cemetery and read the tombstones. Any age at all. One needs to remember that. That's why we did the five daily recollections yesterday. In order to arouse what is called in Pali some vega urgency. It may be finished any time. Do it now. If not now, when? So if there are noble friends, they will constantly support us in meditating, in learning more about the spiritual path. There will be helpful in any manner or form they can be, specifically when it becomes difficult. A noble and good friend helps us when things are difficult not only when we're happy. And a noble friend is a person who will share secrets with us, being totally confident 
that we don't spill them and that's why we can share with them because they also won't spill our secrets. The person that will give what is difficult to give is wholehearted. Noble friendship means that we become noble friends. If we are not noble friends, we won't get any. Birds of a feather flock together. And if we happen to know noble friends, we have to endeavor to be one too, otherwise we'll lose them. It's all up to us. It doesn't mean when you come home today to ring up your old friends and say, look, I'm not coming around anymore, you're not noble enough. <laughs> it means sorting out in your mind what can be helpful for spiritual growth and trying to arouse that in yourself. And as you arouse that in yourself, you will find that quite automatically you will come together with more and more people who are doing the same thing without you taking any steps. One meets them in meditation courses. One meets them in places where there is spiritual practice. One doesn't have to go even to another country. They're everywhere. Everywhere at all they can be found. So to have noble friends, one has to be a noble friend. One has to be helpful when it's difficult. One has to give what's difficult to give. One has to be supportive of spiritual practice. And best of all, if we can find a noble friend who's taken a few steps ahead of us, one who can guide us a bit, that's wonderful. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, the same age, and his attendant for 25 years. So together with the Buddha constantly. And he once said to the Buddha, Sir, a good friend is half of the holy life, or you can say half of the spiritual life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the spiritual life. All hinges on the good friend. Now we also use the word good friend, Kalyanamitta, for the meditation teacher. That's just another title for a meditation teacher, one could say. And of course, they are not always available. They are here and there to be found. We do not have to wait for that. Good friends can be found also within just people who practice. There is a very good friend that all of us have. And we very often think it's our enemy. But it's actually a very important friend. And that's Dukkha. And Dukkha means all that we feel is unsatisfactory. It can be pain in the body. It can be pain in the emotions. It can be dislike, rejection. It can be discontent, which is rampant. Most people have loads of that. All that is our good friend, if we use it properly. And don't try to run away from it. But see it for what it is, part of the human existence. And that there is a way to transcend. That teacher 
Dukkha stays with us. That teacher doesn't travel around. That teacher doesn't go anywhere where we are not. We are always together. And we never like that teacher because it seems to be nasty to us. But actually, all it does is it reminds us constantly to practice. But we do other things with it. We try to get away from it. We try to run away from it. We try to blame somebody. We try to distract ourselves. We try to get some nice sense contact. Everything possible to get away from that teacher. Not possible. Always around. Comes back all the time. If you now, for instance, would say, I have knee pains and uh, I really don't like meditating. It's all very uncomfortable and uh, I think I'm going home. So what would the teacher say? The teacher would say, I'm very sorry, but uh, hope to see you again some other time. Now you say that to Dukkha. Say, I don't like it, I don't like meditation, my knees are hurting me, I think I'm going home. So what does Dukkha say? That's all right, but I'm coming along. (laughs) (laughs) So wherever we go, that teacher is really the most important one, if recognized as being a teacher, if not thought to be a nuisance. Not a nuisance, but a teacher. The noble friends are such an essential part of leading a spiritual life that the Buddha mentions it not once, but many, many times. And noble conversations are food for the mind. And the food for the body that we take in is very carefully usually chosen. We might even go to the health food shop and buy health food. We might think brown rice much better than white, which it probably is. Um, And we might be very careful about what we put into our body, as we should be. But how careful are we about what we put into our mind? Health food for the mind is far more important than health food for the body. Preferably both, of course. But if you have to choose between one, it's a health food for the mind. And a lot of that food comes from conversations. Look at the conversations. For that, one has to be alert, awake, and aware. And the conversations that we have are due to the fact how we talk. If there are unsavory conversations going on, we have the opportunity to change the topic. If we can't do it because we haven't got that skill, and that's a skill, we can always walk away from it. If somebody was to give you lunch, which you know is obviously poisoned, what are you going to do with it? Eat it or throw it away? The same with conversation. Why take it in? Throw it away if you can't change it. If you can't make the poison into something good, don't take it. You have to walk away from it. The noble conversations are so important because they keep the mind on a basis where it doesn't have to try and remember, oh, actually I wanted to go on a spiritual path, so maybe tomorrow I'll start again. 
which is not uncommon. But it's a kind of conversation which keeps one quite solidly on remembering that all this amounts to is purification of heart and mind. One's own conversation is, of course, the most important one to watch. The Buddha had a lot to say about speech, too. I don't think that we'll have time here on a weekend like this to discuss all that, but some of the things I'm mentioning to you are at least some guidelines and beginnings of seeing what one can use to have this inner peacefulness. Conversations which are geared towards dislike, rejection, resistance, hate, or greed, passions, wanting, whatever this one wants, all of those bring anxiety, frustration, restlessness to the mind. The opposite of peacefulness. So we have to be careful about that. In our daily life, the antidote for the skeptical doubt, the antidote for the sloth and torpor in the mind, are both noble friends and noble conversations, and for all the others also. And when it comes to skeptical doubt, the Buddha said also to try and find wise and mature people to associate with. So not only noble friends, but wise and mature people to associate with. Well, one has to see where to find them. They are to be found in the most unlikely places. And they don't usually wear a badge or a halo. So one has to have a bit of wisdom oneself where wisdom is to be found. And all of us have sufficient wisdom to know when we hear the truth. We may not like it because it's not as comfortable as being distracted, as having sense contacts, but we know when it's true. And if we are really our own best friend, and if we mean well for ourselves, we will disregard the physical discomfort and make sure that the spiritual growth is being attended to. So, wise and mature people are another help on our path because we can discuss with them on an ennoble conversation. Now, this first instance of being able to stay on the breath is like putting the key in the keyhole. Watching the breath is the key. It's not the meditation. Don't ever think that a method is meditation. A method is a method by any name. No matter who teaches what. They're all methods. But they're keys. They're keys to unlocking the door to our inner chambers of peacefulness, joy, calm, and elevated consciousness state. And in order to get in there, and everybody's got the door, and everybody has the keyhole, but very few people take the trouble of trying to find the keyhole and 
even those that trouble to do that, not so many ever get to it because they don't have the determination and perseverance which is necessary. Now, you, if you have a key in your hand and you want to fit it into a keyhole to unlock a door, obviously you have to hold that key steady and you have to have it in hand long enough and steady enough in order to fit it into that keyhole. It's the same with the breath. Long enough, steady enough, which means without thinking, just steady. And then there comes a moment from a practical standpoint when the breath becomes so fine that it's hard to find or maybe it disappears altogether supposedly it doesn't of course because otherwise we wouldn't be able to carry on living but it seems to be so fine that we either think it has disappeared or we can't find it the first reaction in the mind is usually taking a deep breath it can also be a reaction of fear oh goodness I'm not breathing well all of that any of that of course interrupts the concentration and makes it impossible to open the door because we've got to be steady with that key in the keyhole so when the opportunity arises through diligent practice and some people need to be diligent for years on end and others just for weeks and others for months just whatever our tendencies are when that opportunity arises for the breath to become utterly fine so that it's hard to find that is the moment when we can actually unlock that door that door most people don't even know they've got it. And why is that? Because it's covered over with our negativities, our wishes, our desires, our egocentricity, our dislikes, our resistances, our envies, our worries, all the rest of it that goes on in the mind day in and day out, all our reactions. So we don't know that we have that door. We do have an inkling that there ought to be something more to life than what we've experienced so far. And if we have given up on the sense context and are no longer trying to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow by trying to find the actual rainbow, but have realized that we are carrying the pot of gold within, we may actually persevere with meditation. But not knowing that this door is there is only due to the fact that it's covered over with debris. And that's why the purification is the essential aspect, so that the debris is no longer covering over the entrance. The constant application to the meditation subject purifies enough for that time so that the door is actually to be found being able to unlock it means that we become able to enter into our inner chambers which are all there waiting for us and have been waiting for us ever since we've been here and in this life and all other lives 
but we've never taken the trouble to have a look. And that ability to get inside and enter inside makes it possible to get to know a totally different aspect of ourselves where we finally know that all we've been looking for is not out there, it's not in another person, it's not in India, it's in our own heart. And when we finally realize that, that keeps us meditating and practicing. This instance is distinguished by a delightful sensation. Sensation meaning physical. This delightful sensation is called piti in Pali, P-I-T-I, and is also translated as interest. Now we get interested. Most people do not have to be told to remain meditators then. Some actually still fall off the path. Why? I don't know. But most people get interested enough to remain on the pillow and keep on practicing. The less purification one has, the easier, the easier it is to fall off the path. The more difficult it is to enter through the door, the more purification there is already, the less time one needs. None of that has any distinguishing marks of blame. All of it is nothing but practice. So being able to get to this particular aspect of the meditation enables one to realize that all we've been looking for is within. The delightful sensation is sometimes called bliss or rapture, but these are enormously loaded words which seem to indicate something so outstanding that one is expecting something. They are, the reality of it is, it's not so outstanding. It's not so um, full of expectation. It is just happening because of the fact it's always there. We just can't get at it because we're always thinking. Our thinking covers over that door. Being able to experience that from a tra practical standpoint means learning to stay on it as a meditation subject. When it has arisen, it becomes a meditation subject. One needs to learn to stay on it. If one stays on it, one then is able to go further steps. This is an automatic antidote against ill will, which is a overall name for all our negativities. Hate, dislike, rejection, resistance, fear, all of those are included in ill will. It may be directed towards ourselves, it may be directed towards our partner, it may be directed against the government, it can be anything against the postman, the weather, it doesn't matter. Ill will contains all of that, every negative thought that doesn't like. I don't like this, I don't like that. All of that's ill will. And it is the most 
unpleasant emotion that we know. And people who are very prone to have it are those who will practice better because it's so unpleasant. Those, everybody has some of it, but some have more than others. Those people who have more of the greed will practice less well because greed for sensual gratification seems to promise a gratification, something that will be nice. So one is constantly tempted to find it somewhere else other than within. People who have a lot of hate are much more difficult to live with are much more difficult for themselves to live with themselves, but at least they'll practice. So it's a great advantage in that respect. The greed people are much easier to live with. They can live with themselves much easier because they have constant compensations for all the dukkha and they don't practice so well because things seem to be going fairly well most of the time. So both have advantage and disadvantage. This one, this uh, instant, of the um, uh, delightful sensation is the automatic antidote for the ill will during meditation, naturally. One can't have both. But it has residual aspects in our lives. There's a residual quality about it. And this is why one can say, having got to that point, the mind has finally found its home. It has found a home where they can at least can sit down comfortably, like what the body does every day, every evening when one comes home from work. It sits down comfortably in a chair, lies down comfortably in a bed. Finally, the mind has found a place to sit down comfortably to. And therefore, it has a residual effect. If during the day, like everybody experiences, there are unpleasant things happening where the mind feels like reacting negatively. It has a cushion. First of all, it doesn't get stung so much and it doesn't react so unpleasantly because it knows as soon as it sits down on the pillow, it can go home again and be at ease. It's the same as for the body if we work during the day and we would have no home to go to, we would be quite worried that in the evening we have to live on the street. But we do know we have a home to go to. So even if it's a bit uncomfortable during the day, it's not such a big worry because we know at night we have, can take a bath, have a nice uh, shower, uh, have a nice meal, sit down in a chair and so on. The same now goes for the mind. Although during the day there are discomforts, people say things we don't want to hear, do things we don't want to know about, we ourselves think things we are not very pleasant, yet we know we can go home. And therefore, none of this has as much of a sting. It's much easier to bear. And as one becomes adept at it and practiced, and goes all the other steps also, none of it has a sting anymore. It's just happening. It's just going on. And it will keep going on, but one doesn't have to react anymore. That's, of course, a long way of practice. In the beginning, this 
particular state is not that difficult to get to with the proviso that one is looking for it. The only thing to look for is to stay on the breath. That's all. If one's looking around for the keyhole, one does not know how to hang on to the key. The only thing to do is to hang on to the key, keep it solidly in hand, and having it solidly in hand, then it goes into the keyhole automatically. So there's nothing to look for, there's nothing to think about as an achievement. There's only the knowledge that there are steps on this path. And the steps on this path are important to know because we have to know, the, have to have the understood experience. If we don't have an understood experience, it's like a small child putting its hand on a hot stove and getting burned, but doesn't know it's a hot stove that's doing it. So it keeps on putting the hand on the hot stove until it finally finds out that's where the burning comes from. If we don't have the understood experience, the experience doesn't help us at all. We've got to understand what's going on. And the more we understand, the more we will be inclined to be whole. Needs reinforcement in our daily lives, and I've already talked about that yesterday, how we can make the quality of love in our hearts grow and expand so that it becomes the natural outpouring of the heart without having a particular subject that we consider lovable. I've already explained that yesterday and that needs to be the reinforcement in daily life and it's a challenge for morning to night. With it goes the loving-kindness meditation as a method which we also did yesterday and will do again tonight. Before we finish here, all of these need to reinforce our meditative experience. But without the meditative experience, it's very difficult to constantly counteract the natural, natural negativities in mind and heart. They are totally natural. They are our ego consciousness. But the spiritual path has only one goal and one reason, and that is to surpass that ego consciousness and transcend our naturalness, which is constantly beset with difficulties, which is constantly engaged in trying to sort out something, where finally, when we have transcended all that, we come to the state of natural, or we might say supranatural, inner peace and joy, which are no longer is dependent on all that around us. So being natural, while it has been toted to be one of the most wonderful things to be, does not really work, does it, being natural, because we do have our likes and dislikes, which are very difficult to gratify in our ordinary day-to-day -day activities. So the first step towards transcending arises when the concentration becomes strong enough so that the breath is no longer needed as a meditation subject 
and the delightful sensation takes over. It's a matter of sticking to a meditative practice. Anyone can do it. There's nobody exempt from that. The um, distracted mind is, of course, the, um, the difficulty, but that too, with practice, goes away. Because eventually the mind says, well, all right, then I'll stop thinking all this. Because it's getting tired, tedious and tiring to keep on thinking when one actually would like to meditate. It's as if one has a um, pull into two directions. One really wants to meditate and one isn't doing it. So the mind does become tired of that. So if one is adamant to be persevering, it works. The time element, how long it takes, is impossible to say. Depends entirely upon one's own inner purification. The um, daily purification is a necessary adjunct to the meditative purification. The two have to work hand in hand. Without the meditative one, the ordinary worldly one is very difficult. Having both of them on hand make it much easier. In fact, it's guaranteed to work because there is no doubt that the mind purifies greatly while it is engaged in something that is utterly pleasing without having any thought about it. No judgment, because as soon there is judgment, the whole thing breaks down. No thought about wanting to keep it. The moment that arises, the whole thing is finished. There's no thought, cannot be any thought, about wanting to get it, because if one wants to get it, one can't. So there's no impurity in it. It's just a pure experience. Because of that, the purification aspect is quite strong. The moment the mind says, I'd like to keep it, it's done with. The moment the mind says, I'd like to get it back, that's finished too. And the moment the mind says, isn't it wonderful, it's also finished. So none of that works. So as we do our meditation now, there's no thought of, I want to get there. There's nowhere to get. We're already there. The only thing that's happening is that we've covered over the door with debris and can't see it. That's all. There's nowhere to go and nothing to get. It's all already within us. So all we have to do is keep on letting go. Letting go of thoughts, wishes, plans, hopes, ideas, all the things that are constantly besetting the mind and just be here now. That's all that's necessary. And the longer we can do that, the easier it is to get inside the door. This mansion that we have within has eight chambers. I'm explaining the entry hall. And this entry hall has other aspects. There are more aspects to it than the one I have so far explained, and I'll explain some more this afternoon on the first entry into this inner mansion. Before we do our meditation now, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask.
Uh, you know the sleeping, mm-hmm. yes, and one side of the body does not seem to have any responses. Perseverance. Keep at it. It all solves it, loosens itself out. But you can get the sensations in the harder part of the body too, can you? Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Perseverance. Just keep on doing it. And as you keep on doing it, it changes. It will loosen up. Yes. Yeah. Unless you can feel that there's a barrier between each between the two sides. Can you feel a strong barrier in between? No, okay. That's all right. Yes. Equalize. Eventually. Anything else? Yes. Um, I think some people may be a little bit confused, but when you when you plant the tomatoes, it's very difficult. You said that you have to not want them to be in a special way, but you've also got to generate enough energy to put them in the ground and water them and look after them. And if you don't have a goal in mind, most people find that extremely difficult. So if you could make suggestions maybe uh, on how you can get your practice like the tomatoes to be growing and developing without wanting. Yes, uh, it's quite true that that's uh, difficult because the human mind has inbuilt the achievement syndrome. So if we plant tomatoes, we have in mind, I'm going to eat those tomatoes, I'm going to give at least half of them to the neighbors, I'm, uh, they're going to be especially good because they're biologically grown and all the rest of it. Um, the, the spiritual practice, I'm planting because I like planting. I like digging in the earth and putting seeds in the earth and I'm doing that nicely. So I'm being very attentive to planting. And as I'm being attentive to planting, the next step is I have to be attentive to watering. So I like watering. I'm going to water. And not I'm going to give the tomatoes to the neighbors. They're going to be the best tomatoes in the neighborhood. They're going to be big, red, uh, unblemished, and all the rest of that. But I like watering. I like planting. It's the same with the practice in meditation. I want to meditate, so I'm sitting here watching my breath. That's it, finished. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. You don't have the enjoyment factor, like, say, I like watering, make comparison with sitting. It isn't an enjoyment factor to sit in pain and not really get on with it. So, unless you have um, a factor of, of like, a sense of ambition, you won't have the energy to go further on being start watering and liking it, and start sitting and liking it. I don't approve of sitting in pain and being, uh, having painful sensations and being concerned with painful sensations. I explained that also. I don't approve of that. I don't think that's conducive to practice. It may be for some people, but uh, they're, they're rarities. Most people get put off by it. And I don't think that that's a good way of dealing with pain either. 
just to sit through it and dislike it. I, I think that's very detrimental to one's mind state. So actually, what happens is that, the, what I also mentioned, the gratitude in the heart that one has the opportunity to do something other than watch the TV or go swimming and do something other than going to the pub or whatever this one has in or reading the newspaper or that one has this gratitude that one is able and has the opportunity and has actually taken the opportunity to do something other and doing this other means sitting and watching the breath and if the pain should arise to deal with it in the way I explained namely by recognizing the four parts four components of the mind which are constantly engaged in our thinking and reacting and disliking or having to deal with it in another way is a um, difficulty which I don't think leads people onward to doing something nice the only thing that they might have in the mind is um, well hopefully it will, it will change but that's future that's not being here now and being here now is I'm grateful I can do this I'm doing it that's all. Yes, it is. It's part of our part of spiritual life. Without gratitude, there's also no spiritual life. Gratitude, there's so many things to be grateful for, and uh, this is one of them. So it's a very important aspect to use. And it, it's being with the thing one is doing is the epitome of mindfulness and mindfulness is the heart of Buddhist meditation mindfulness means being in this moment only it's not the tomatoes that are going to be sometime in three months that we're going to eat them that's a useless uh, thought because I don't have them to eat I've got the water and maybe put manure in the soil or whatever it is I have to do and the same is with the meditation. It's useless to think, yes, in three months I can get these uh, nice sensations. And what's the use of that? That's not meditation. To be here now means mindfulness. Mindfulness of being in the moment. And that is peaceful. Because the minute you start thinking about the tomatoes in three months from now, you think about all the bugs that could eat them in between. And you think of the... Um, uh, too much rain that might spoil them, too little rain that might make them not grow, so you can start worrying about it. And the same thing, or enjoying the thought of giving away non-existing tomatoes, you know. So the same with the, with the meditation. If you think about those things that can come in the future, you're trying to have something that doesn't exist. It's not mindfulness. So that might be um, a way of looking at it, this momentary mindfulness of ex of existing only in this moment with all that this moment contains. And all it contains is breathing, breathing and sitting. That's all it contains, this moment. So maybe that's a way of looking at it. Does that uh, answer the question? <laughs> okay, anything else? Any other questions?
I have now already mentioned three factors of the meditation and three factors that are our hindrances. There are two more factors of meditation and two more hindrances. So I'll talk to you about those that you have, let's say, a more rounded picture of the whole matter. The um, delightful sensation, which is the automatic antidote for ill will, is also accompanied under all circumstances with a feeling of joy. Now this feeling of joy is a natural outcome of having very pleasant, delightful sensation. It's impossible not to have that. So they go together. And at, the, um, at that stage of meditation, the uh, physical sensation is the overriding one. It's far stronger than the joy. The joy, while it is a companion, is mild and in the background. But it is there. And uh, a feeling of happiness. And at that time, there is an automatic antidote arising because of the joy against the, the hindrance which is called restlessness and worry. It's also remorse. It's um, a bad conscience. It's uh, a feeling of anxiety. All these go under the heading of restlessness and worry. The restless mind, which then of course shows itself in the restless body, and the worry, which the mind conjures up about mostly imaginary things. We worry about all sorts of things. Some people make a habit out of it. And uh, when they're habitual worriers, they can always find something to worry about, but it's never in the present moment. To worry, one needs to think of the future. One can, of course, think of the past, but most people worry about the future. Both states are states that produce unhappiness because mm. there's no peace in that. So the Buddhist uh, simile for restlessness and worry is being a slave. They push one around. One is not in charge of one's emotions, but is being pushed around by those two. And of course, one has no control until one has learned that. If one is prone to them just once in a while, it's a very natural thing that happens to people. But some people have them more often than having a peaceful mind. And then it's very difficult to start meditating because the mind just isn't attuned to being at ease and being restful and being contented. Contentment is obviously the opposite of being restless and worried. So this happiness which arises in the mind in conjunction with the feelings, with the 
sensations, which are very pleasant, brings about a feeling of contentment. One has to know this, what is happening, otherwise one can't recognize the factors of the meditation which arise and non-recognition with no understood experience, the experience itself is not helpful anymore. It's only the understood experience which can give us any assistance. Because if we can't use our meditative experiences in daily life for changing that which is not contented, not peaceful, we're meditating in vain. Meditation is not just for sitting there and trying to concentrate. Meditation has to bring about a change. Now, the concentration, even if it's minor or if it is only for a few moments, and sometimes even without having a physical sensation accompanying it, can bring about a momentary feeling of inner happiness. One only notices it when one is really aware of what's going on within oneself. This inner awareness is actually the key to meditation. Without that inner awareness, meditation remains striving. And striving to meditate doesn't work. There is no striving entailed in it. It is a sense of having the mind at ease and at rest, trying to stay that way, but not striving to hang on to the breath, not striving to get a blissful sensation, not striving to sit in a certain position, nothing like that. Striving we do in everyday life. We're all familiar with it. And that's the kind of mental attitude and the kind of mentality which is only suitable for daily life. It's not suitable for meditation. In fact, meditation is to bring about a different kind of mental ability. That totally different kind of mental ability which arises out of the concentrated, concentrated state of mind. Now, the concentrated state of mind does not have to go on for a very long time in order to bring about an altered state of consciousness. But it has to go on for some time, and some time is totally arbitrary. It's not hours and hours and hours, but it's also not just a few seconds or minutes. The altered state of consciousness which arises out of the concentrated state is a state of consciousness where the mind is at ease, at rest, not thinking, not striving, not trying, but just being what it is by nature. And being what it is, one does experience certain symptoms, of which the first one is very delightful physical sensation, and the second one, an inner happiness, an inner joy. Because they arise simultaneously, and I'm going to repeat that, the delightful sensation is overriding in the beginning. The inner joy is the next step. But that, at this point, 
in the first entrance hall or the first chamber that we may get to of this inner mansion, it is the overriding factor of a delightful sensation. And with the mind at ease and at rest, obviously, we counteract the natural tendency of restlessness and worry. Restlessness is induced in us because of the fact that we're not contented with what we have and who we are and what we can do and where we are and therefore we like to move. We don't need to move physically at all times in order to express our restlessness. The expression of our restlessness is mostly done in the mind, flitting from one thought to the next. And this flitting about is very obvious in meditation. That flitting from this to that is the restless mind because it hasn't found where it can actually be totally at ease and totally happy. Obviously, the restless state of mind is also then translated into physical activity and sometimes into physical activity which takes up so much time that one has the excuse, I have no time for meditation or no time for this or that. But that's the next step. First it has to be, and, you, and of course is, in the mind. And we notice that in our meditative state. It is also the mind that conjures up thoughts, which it can then nag at. We usually call them personal problems, but they don't necessarily have to be a problem. They can also be plans and hopes and uh, all sorts of ideas. The mind wants to have them because then it can do, um, can feel that it's important. So all of these things make it appear as if our mind activity were important. But if we actually examine the content of all that mind activity in honesty, we will see that it's totally unimportant. It doesn't produce a thing. Sometimes we have to have that mind activity because we have to make a living. But other than that, if that's what we're doing, we have to have to have mental constructs in order to make a living. But at other times that mind activity is nothing but a restless mind which is not at ease, not at peace. And it appears as if it is really thinking about something that has significance. And therefore it is so important to be able to label the content of the thought. And therefore the labeling in the meditation teaches us to label in daily life. And as we become more and more attuned to that, we see eventually that the significance of all this thinking, which we thought might have some value, is really another mental construct. It isn't there. Not that that now enables us immediately to drop down into an easy state of mind, and drop down is not just a word, it's actually a feeling, which arises when the mind does become uh, more concentrated. One can have that feeling. It's not necessary, but often it is as if, as if one drops down.
So one can actually use those words as a dropping down into a feeling and in a state of rest and ease. Again, in daily life, the antidote for restlessness and worry is um, noble friends and noble conversation, and also learning more about the Buddha's teaching, so that one can see clearly what is important to do in one's life and what isn't, to sort out one's priorities. That's a very important step to sort out one's priorities, because one doesn't have more than a certain number of hours in each day. So priorities have to be known. And through the understanding of the teaching, one could be helped by that. So this is another recommendation. Instead of reading just anything or hopeful ideas, reading the actual teaching as it applies to us and our daily activities. The best help, of course, that we can get against restlessness and worry, restless mind, is insight. And for that, we need to examine impermanence. So I um, mentioned it already yesterday, and I'll mention it again. If the mind does not want to stay on the breath in order to become calm, we can watch the impermanence of each breath. And we can see how we are dependent for our lives on a totally impermanent activity and a totally impermanent intake and output of air. And if that, that must give a clue to what we really are. It doesn't explain it 100% yet, of course, but there's a clue entailed in that. And it's important to look at that clue. And as we watch the impermanent intake and output of the air, of the breath, if the mind balks at that and said, doesn't want to know it, it's even more important to look at it. Or if the mind says, well, yes, impermanent, so look again. It has to eventually bring about a feeling of transparency of oneself, of constant transformation from one to a thing to another. It has to bring about a feeling of flow, a feeling of not being stationary, solid or compact. And the beginning of recognizing that is the understanding in the mind when it watches the breath that there is a constant coming and going. And the next thing to look at would be the thoughts. There's a constant coming and going, and the feelings and the sensations. And as one looks at that constant coming and going, the mind may actually become much calmer, less restless, because it can see that this restlessness is also only coming and going or arising and ceasing, or being born and dying. And as, one, as the mind sees that, it may give up this restless activity and actually drop into a state of concentration where it can experience itself at a level 
where we usually don't have access. This is an access to a level of mind which brings about totally different ways of dealing with oneself in the world because it is not based on rational thinking and rational thinking does not answer human problems. We can tell ourselves a hundred times it's not rational to be unhappy because one certain person has said this or that or because one certain person has done or not done this or that which is totally rational but we still feel unhappy about it. So rationality doesn't answer our problems. It helps us to make a living. And it also helps us to not be overwhelmed by our surroundings. But it doesn't really get at the root of our being. So the meditative state of the mind, which happens when we can let go of the restlessness of the mind, that meditative state of the mind gives us new access to other feelings that we are latent within, but usually covered over with thinking. The um, fifth of the meditative factors is called one-pointedness. Now this factor has to be present in any and all meditations, whether it's for a second or two or a minute or an hour. One-pointedness is a necessity for meditation. We can't have the flitting around mind and still think we're meditating. So one-pointedness is when the mind is actually focused. And although most people have a perfectly valid wish to focus the mind, it takes a lot of training. And from that, the first thing that one should know and recognize is the nature of the ordinary untrained mind, how it is in constant movement, how it does everything it's not, we don't want it to do, just because it hasn't been trained to stand still. So one-pointedness as a fifth factor of the meditation counteracts the hindrance, which is probably and can be said to be our worst enemy and very often not recognized at all because it appears to be something which promises success and it's called the desire for sensual gratification. Now I've talked about that yesterday um, a bit, how we have one level of our being, the lowest so to say, which is the instinctual, the sensual, where we contact the world around us with our senses. And as we contact the world around us with our senses, which we can't help, we have to. I mean, it wouldn't be common sense to walk around with closed eyes and closed ears and so on. As we contact it, we have immediately, as a follow-up to the contact, we have feelings. There's no way around it. We do get the feeling from the contact. If you want to think about that for a moment, just remember that when you get a knee pain, the first thing you had was touch contact. And or a back pain or whatever it may be. So there's touch contact, one of the senses. And then you have a feeling. 
and the feeling can be one of three pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The neutral ones we don't really care about. First of all, we don't notice them because we're not mindful enough. And secondly, they're not unpleasant enough to make us wonder and worry. So we are concerned with pleasant and unpleasant. So the our sensual desire, the desire for sensual gratification is with us in all waking moments. And we might even say it's with us even at night when asleep. Because even when asleep, the body still moves from one position to another because it's uncomfortable. The mind recognizes the discomfort and makes the body move. So we are actually pushed around by the desire for sensual gratification all the time. Now, if we become aware of that and know it, we at least have a handle on it. But as long as we're not aware of it and don't know it, we're going to be pushed around over and over again. And the unfortunate part of it is that we can never gratify our sensual desires for any length of time, just for a brief period. And then a new one has to arise because the old one, having been gratified, is no longer in existence, the gratification having disappeared, and so a new one arises. One of the mistakes we make, and that's very, very common, is that we think the object of gratification is at fault. Not that the gratification itself is at fault. No, it's the object. It wasn't the best person, it wasn't the most beautiful music, it wasn't the nicest food, it wasn't the right uh, vacation, it wasn't the nice, nicest talk. We don't recognize the fact that the gratification itself is completely impermanent and cannot fulfill. We think it's the wrong object that we choose or subject. So what do we do? We try to find a better one over and over again. And our whole economy, much of it as there is, is based on that. The whole economy of the whole world is based on the gratification of our sensual desires because we have them constantly. A person who has gained access to other states of consciousness will still have gratification of sensual desires, but it becomes a totally different attitude and a totally different relationship to them. When we have gained access to other states of consciousness through the meditation and through insight, of course, the gratification of sensual desires is taken in one's stride as a very pleasant interlude in one's life and gratitude may arise. But certainly, two things disappear. And one is the expectation that whatever subject or object has given some gratification of sensual desire is now going to be the fulfilling object. That expectation is gone and therefore no longer the disappointment 
arises. One knows the gratification of sensual desire to be totally impermanent. Whatever it may be, whether it's food or whether it's uh, seeing or hearing, whether it's a touch, contact, anything at all. That's one thing that goes, the expectation of fulfillment. And the other thing that goes is the trying to keep or repeat. A person who has gained access to higher states of consciousness and has got some insight will no longer go out of their way trying to gain access to sensual gratification. It comes anyway. Every human being has some gratification of their sensual desire. But as long as we, as long as we believe or are actually engaged in getting our happiness from them, we will go out to look for them and search for them and spend time, energy and all our um, abilities trying to get them. That goes. One doesn't go out to look for them. And not going out to look for them at the same time entails no effort to keep what cannot be kept. So, first of all, there is an ease of operation and secondly, because the expectation is gone, because the search for it is gone and the trying to keep what cannot be kept is gone, there is an opening up of time and energy which can be used far more productively. One doesn't have to use one's time and energy for the gratification of sensual desires. Being a human being, we have them anyway. We always have the senses with us, but they are given to us, or they are part of being a human being, because they are necessary for survival. But instead of making them our survival packet, we think we could make them the pleasure park in which we could live. Nobody's ever managed to do that. And yet, the whole world is trying. It takes a meditative mind to know that, to recognize it and be able to live accordingly. And it can be done just through investigation to see whether any gratification of any sensual desire has ever remained. And all one has to do is think about it for one second only. And how many times one has tried to regain it. And now then, as another aspect to that, when one no longer expects nor searches for them, for these gratifications, and doesn't want to keep them, but knows them to be impermanent, the enjoyment of them is pure and therefore much greater. Because the sting of losing them is gone, and the thing of having to get them back is gone. So when they do arise, the enjoyment is pure. It doesn't have anything underlying the gratification, namely the loss and the expectation and the search. These three are always underlying otherwise. So the purity of enjoyment makes it a totally different attitude and situation in one's life. And because of that, a person that has gained access to that 
has the ability to enjoy the smallest things with a feeling of completeness because it is only that one moment that's happening one moment only everything else at that time is not happening so therefore one should not think that the one-pointedness of meditation which is the antidote to that gratification desire then removes the enjoyment of the senses on the contrary it um, improves them no end brings it to a totally different state of being because the one-pointedness which we learn in meditation is not something that we can then discard or would discard we keep using the one-pointedness in everyday life as being in the moment at all times as we learn to be in the moment in meditation we can use that to be in the moment in mindfulness and bare attention that's the only mental attitude which is successful in removing the problematic of thinking about of worrying of restlessness of anxiety of hoping and planning and also of egocentricity because that what happens at each moment to be totally concerned with only that means that we are in the flow of impermanence and being in the flow of impermanence eventually takes away a great deal of this self-cherishing the flow of impermanence shows us that what is there just a being being moved by all that is happening and not the outer happenings but the natural happenings the law of nature so the one-pointedness in the meditation is an absolute must for the meditation to happen and for a counteraction against that which we believe can make us happy but never does the gratification of the senses the gratification of the senses is compared by